Hello, I'm Daniel Barnett, and welcome to episode 56 of Employment Law Matters on defrauding the coronavirus job retention scheme. And in this episode, you'll hear about why employers are defrauding the scheme, what employees can do about it, how HMRC might find out there's fraud going on, and what HMRC might do. If you don't already subscribe, please do subscribe going to www.danielbarnett.co.uk slash podcast. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. There's a report put out by a firm of solicitors on the internet and in the media yesterday that says that 34% of employers are engaged in defrauding, in some shape or form, the coronavirus job retention scheme. Now, I have no idea whether that statistic is accurate. I'm sure they have absolutely impeccable research methods in order to reach that that figure, even though HMRC don't know what the figure is. And I am sure that they know exactly what they're talking about. It strikes me as a little bit high, but I also think there will be very, very wide levels of fraud going on. I myself have experienced a client approaching me and saying, is it okay? The answer was no, by the way. Is it okay if we furlough our staff and get them to use their home telephone numbers and personal email addresses while continuing to work? They were sales staff, and that way HMRC will never find out about it. I'm aware from conversations on Twitter that there are many employers who basically say to their staff, look, you're still going to have to work, or you're going to have to work for our subsidiary company. That's unlawful, by the way, under the terms of the scheme. And don't tell anyone or you'll be fired. And it's understandable that employees are very anxious about this sort of behaviour because in times when everybody just needs to open a newspaper or turn on the radio to find out that there have been 600,000 job losses made in recent times, anyone's going to be nervous about dobbing their employer in. So how would HMRC find out that this is going on? Well, HMRC are playing their cards quite close to their chest on this because they want to be seen as omnipotent and all-knowing. But I think there are three ways in which they will discover fraud. The first, and I suspect most common, is going to be that the employees or somebody who knows what's going on, makes a confidential report to HMRC. Now, HMRC has a fraud reporting line. And if you Google, as you can probably hear me doing at the moment, report fraud to HMRC, I'm typing it into my computer, the very first thing that comes up is a gov.uk website. And if you click on it, it's headed report fraud to HMRC. There are three options, one of which is report HMRC administered coronavirus relief scheme fraud. It's right at the top of the page. And if you go to that, there's a form, it's not very long, asks for the employer's details, asks what happened. You can complete it anonymously if you want. I'll put the full link in the show notes. And that goes straight off to HMRC. That, I suspect, is going to be the most common way for HMRC to find out something dodgy has gone on. Bear in mind, employers have to have written evidence that employees have been furloughed. So there's got to be some form of letter. It no longer has to be a formal agreement. And that's got to be retained for five years. So if HMRC in two years time go round to an employer and say, show us the proof that these employees were furloughed, show us the written notification and an employer can't provide that evidence, and I can assure you HMRC are going to interrogate the metadata to make sure it hasn't been created 
two years later and backdated. If the employer can't produce it, well, the whole lot of furlough pay is going to have to be repaid. I'll come back to that in a second. The second way that they'll find out, so the first way is confidential tip-offs. The second way I suspect they'll find out is just random audits. They're going to be doing random audits. They've said this. I doubt they'll discover a huge amount of fraud that way because they're not going to go into a massive amount of detail if they're not tipped off. But that's another way they might find out about fraud. And the third way is they're going to, and again, this is just my speculation, but it's, it seems obvious, they're going to look to see whether businesses have, when they complete their next tax return, have maintained or even increased their revenue or profit, despite putting in claims under the coronavirus job retention scheme. Because if they've put in claims saying that the business has been adversely affected by the scheme, yet they have reported increased turnover and or profit... A, the business was probably never eligible for assistance under the scheme anyway, so HMRC would want the money back. And B, HMRC will probably look on that as prima facie evidence of fraud in the sense that maybe the employees were continuing to work during the time between the 1st of March and the end of the scheme on the 31st of October 2020, and so the money should be repaid. And of course, it's very difficult once HMRC takes that view to persuade them otherwise. It'll probably mean an appeal to the tax tribunal. So what will HMRC do if they suspect fraud? Well, the easiest thing to do, one would have thought, would simply be to reclaim the money. But I've been tipped off, and this is something I read on Twitter. It wasn't a personal tip-off. It was somebody, someone authoritative putting this on their Twitter feed, that the finance bill, which is in the process of being drafted and contains all the details for the next year's tax affairs, The finance bill is going to contain a clause enabling HMRC to levy 100% tax on any amount they believe was wrongfully claimed. So say a business has claimed £15,000, it's going to be much more in practice, but say £15,000 through the coronavirus job retention scheme, well, HMRC will just say, we want you to pay 100% tax on £15,000, and they'll put an extra £15,000 on the next tax bill. And that's a clean way for them to be able to do it without accusing employers of over fraud. Now, doubtless, there'll be appeal mechanisms put in, whether it's to HMRC or to a tax tribunal, but that's probably going to be the way they reclaim the money. There's also the possibility of penalties. There's also the possibility of criminal prosecution. From the 1st of July, when the flexible furlough scheme comes in, we're going to see other issues as well, because given employees will be entitled to work for some of the hours, it's going to be much easier for an employer to say to HMRC, well, Fred Bloggs was working for 20 hours and not working, furloughed for 20 hours that week, so will you please pay 50% of his salary bill, or 50% of 80%, more accurately, and HMRC will find it quite difficult to disprove that, especially because the employee probably won't know what the employer has put in a claim for. And maybe Fred Bloggs worked 35 hours and was only furloughed for five, yet the employer is claiming for 20 hours in that particular week. So there's a lot of potential there for fraud once the flexible furlough scheme comes into place. The employer, again, has to keep careful records for five years. And if those records aren't maintained, then HMRC are going to say, give us the money back. But it's probably not difficult for an employer who sets out to be dishonest to create some sort of Excel spreadsheet or other records 
wrongly recording the number of hours that the employee was working and was furloughed. Do have a look at the show notes and I'll put there, as I said, information about how to use HMRC's confidential tip-off line. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Daniel Barnett. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Hello, I'm Daniel Barnett, an employment law barrister from Chambers in Central London, and I hope you enjoy listening to my podcast, Employment Law Matters. At a time when businesses are facing real problems getting through the coming months, we know hard decisions have to be made, and I've recorded a series of videos showing you ways in which you can avoid redundancies and also showing in a step-by-step format, if you have no other choice, exactly how you can go about making redundancies in a way which is fair, reasonable, and legal. I'll tell you what the 10 modules are very quickly. Module one is an introduction. Module two is on the definition of redundancy. And if you'd like to know more, have a look, please, at www.gettingredundancyright.com. Module three is 13 ways to avoid redundancies. Module four is on choosing your selection pool. I talk about when you can use a pool of one, when you use a bigger pool, how to decide how narrow or wide to make it, the two rules to use when choosing your selection pool, and all about consultation over the pool. Module five is on selection criteria. We'll talk about objective versus subjective criteria. Subjective is not a bad word. We'll talk about clarity of criteria, how to use the matrix method, LIFO and length of service as a criterion, performance and skill-related criteria, absence-related criteria, and how you adjust scores to deal with those on long-term sick or those with disabilities or those on maternity leave. I'll tell you how Eversheds, one of the best law firms in the country, got this completely wrong. We'll talk about cost to the business as a criterion and miscellaneous criterion as well. Module 6, and again for more detail, go to www.gettingredundancyright.com. Module 6 is on scoring and individual consultation. And you'll learn in that the importance of a fair scoring system, the three rules for making managers score fairly, why it's an easy way out to rely on interviews, but it's dangerous, why I'll never win a consultation would be useless argument. I talk about how long you should consult for. Is a day enough or a week? or a month. I talked to you about what to say when an employee asks for someone else's scores, how you consult with people who aren't in the workplace, such as women on maternity leave or employees on furlough. I give you five key rules for consulting over Zoom or Skype, and I teach you about what happens if an employee refuses to engage with the consultation process. I'll just tell you an outline what the last four modules are about. Number seven is on collective consultation. Number eight is on alternative employment. Number nine on dismissal, including payments, timing of notice and exit packages. And number 10 is miscellaneous issues that I haven't covered elsewhere, like voluntary redundancy, bumping, redundancies following a chupi transfer and the impact of furlough. You can get much more information from www.gettingredundancyright.com. And it also comes with a large number of resources.
I've put together my own template redundancy selection matrix, which you can use to score employees during the selection process. You get a copy of all of this stuff when you download. I'll also give you a copy of my own redundancy policy, which I give to my regular corporate clients. Third, you'll be given access to an exclusive group I've set up on Facebook only for subscribers to the Getting Redundancy Right course, where you can discuss issues from the course and ask questions. Fourth, I'm going to run at least three live online Q&A sessions over Zoom for subscribers to the course to answer questions and help you with redundancy scenarios. Fifth, I'm going to give you complimentary access to the 29 videos of 29 webinars I did in April and May 2020 with 29 employment barristers on 29 aspects of employment law. All these resources, as well as the 10 video modules, are available to anyone who signs up at www.gettingredundancyright.com. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.